Hello, and welcome again to another episode of Five Plain Questions, a podcast that proposes five questions to Native American artists, creators, musicians, writers, movers and shakers, and culture bearers, people in the community that are doing great things for their communities. I'm Joe Williams, your host for this conversation. I'm director of CANA, the Native American programs at the Plains Art Museum. My goal is to showcase these amazing people in our Native American community from around the region and country. I want to introduce you to Vanessa Shortbull. She is a citizen of the Oglala Sioux Tribe. Born on the Pioneer Indian Reservation, she's a descendant of Chief Red Cloud, young man afraid of his horses, Little Wound, and the ghost dance leader, Short Bull. There's a lot that makes Vanessa so interesting. She was previously a Nike-endorsed fitness athlete for the N7 shoe, and she wasn't just Miss South Dakota USA in 2000 and Miss South Dakota in 2002, but she's also a professional ballerina. But that's not what fascinates me about Miss Short Bull. It's the drive and devotion that she's had to her craft since she was a young child. A single focus and determination that to be the best possible version of herself in whatever it is she does. And is seen. And this is seen in all of her achievements and in her daily work. So let's jump into this interview with Vanessa. Vanessa, hi. Thank you for joining us here at Five Plain Questions. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. This is an honor and really a pleasure. It's great to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me, Joe. I'm, it's been a long time. Uh, hopefully we get an opportunity to catch up here. Yes. No, I look, I've been looking forward to this conversation. And yeah, yeah. So let's just jump into this. Uh, would you be able to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about yourself and where you're from? <coughs> So my name is Vanessa Shortbull. I'm a member of the Ogallala Sioux Tribe. Um, I was born in Pine Ridge, South Dakota. Um, I grew up in the Red Cloud community. Uh, my parents are Tom and Darlene Shortbull. My father is currently the president of Ogallala Dakota College. Uh, my mother is a retired nurse of 30 years service for Indian Health Service. Um, on my father's side, um, his parents were uh, Elizabeth Grew and Norman Shortbull. Um, and my mother's parents were uh, Clarence Janice and Sadie Afraid of His Horses. Um, and I've got two brothers, one older. Um, and uh, my older brother, Paul, lives in Yankton, South Dakota now. And I have a younger brother, Frank, who's got two fabulous cha- uh, children, uh, Sadie and Jack. And he currently uh, runs um, his own business in Rapid City, South Dakota. Um, and uh, um, um, I grew up um, in Pine Ridge, and then uh, my mother took a position up in Rapid City. So I'm one of those uh, Indians <laughs> that can say I've, uh, I've lived both on the reservation and off the reservation and, and um yeah, both those experiences have kind of shaped who I um, who I am as a person, um, and um, I, I guess uh, I'm trying to think of like background. Goodness, uh, <laughs> um, so I, I'll start with a. Um, I'm so sorry, Joe. I just like when you say background, it just seems so vast of where to go. <laughs> Okay. Okay. So sorry. Yeah, it is an open-ended com- uh, question. So um, yeah, yeah, bring me in. I yeah. need to focus here. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> so you know, uh, you're you're one of the unique individuals on this program because you've been successful on a number of different things that you've done. 
And I think at a glance, they're they're very separate, separate avenues. And I imagine that there's a theme or a, a thread that has navigated through all of this. And so I, I think for someone listening to this, uh, they should they should know that we first became acquainted uh, through a theater production at the University of South Dakota back in 2000 called Indian Radio Days, uh, directed by the amazing Cameron Ulrich. Uh, so shout out to Cameron. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was during that time I had become aware that you were, and please correct me wrong with my language, um, but you are a trained ballerina dancer. Yes. Uh, I, and maybe that is something we can start with. At, okay, sure. It's something that you started with when you were young. Yes. It's, um, yeah. So um, when I was growing up in um, Pine Ridge, uh, my dad made um, every opportunity for us to get off the reservation and go see live performances, whether it was um, concerts, uh, musical, ballet productions. And he is... Um, I mean, I always feel like if we ever got on Jeopardy, if they had any type of like old movies, classical movies, I mean, he'd go through the category and win hands down. Um, but when we were growing up in Pine Ridge, um, you know, it was really hard to get, you know, cable and all, you know, to see different types of things there. So not only did he, um, you know, take us off the reservation to see shows, but he also made us watch a lot of classical um, movies. And one of the movies that he made me watch as a, when I was growing up um, was called uh, Million Dollar Mermaid. And Million Dollar Mermaid had the fabulous Esther Williams. It, it's one of the big productions. Uh, she was a swimmer and um, they would do all these big water scenes. Um, and one of the, in, in this movie, um, her character goes and is going to go perform at the Hippodrome and she runs into the, the famed uh, ballerina Anna Pavlova. And Anna Pavlova in this movie was played by Maria Talshi. And I remember when she came on screen and my dad was just sat it and he was he, like, had to stop the movie and say, this woman here, this woman is the first American prima ballerina, but he, you know, he never said American Indian prima ballerina. He said American. And, and he said, her name is Maria Talchi and she's a member of the Osei tribe. I mean, but when you saw her, you knew that she was, you know, Indian. And, um, he started talking about her being married to George Balanchine. And that meant nothing to me at the time. Cause I, I didn't know anything. I just knew that here was this most, beautiful woman, um, dancing the dying swan. Um, and I was in love with ballet at that moment that Maria Talshi, um, stepped foot, um, on that screen. And, uh, as I was growing up, that's all I wanted to do was ballet. And I wanted to go, um, to see ballet productions. I wanted to learn everything that I could about ballet production. And, um, I went to school at Holy Rosary and in their library, they had a book, they had two books that had to deal with ballet. Uh, one was about a, it was a cartoon book about a bear, um, going to ballet class about having to be, you know, properly attired. And then one had, was about, uh, a day, it was a huge picture book about the day in the life of the Royal Ballet and the Royal Ballet School. And so it taught you how to do like the positions of the feet and was showing you all these fabulous pictures of 
ballet productions from Giselle to Swan Lake to the Nutcracker. Um, and talking about the famed choreographers that work with the Royal Ballet, um, you know, Macmillan, um, Frederick Ashton. And I just loved that book. And I would go to the library every Friday that we would go, that was our time. And I would check out the same two books. Um, and I just, just loved the book. I just loved looking at the pictures and looking at these ballerinas and Antoinette Sibley and, um, certainly, um, Del. and, um, and we were still living on the reservation and my, my dream was, you know, that I was going to go to, to take ballet class one day, but, um, you know, growing up on the reservation, I, I loved it. I mean, I loved being around my grandmothers because they would take me to Powell's. I, you know, had this great family too, but, you know, the reservation too has its own, um, struggles and, um, you know, we, we have to also, um, you know, we have, we have our own battles to fight, um, on the reservation and sometimes the battles that we fight are with our own people. And, um, you know, I, I walked in one Friday to check out the book and, uh, someone had taken this book and taken a black marker and a, a, a hole puncher and completely destroyed this book. And I remember holding on to this book and I, and I looked and I, I could see the other kids. And I think that they were seeing whether or not I was going to cry or that this was, you know, going to upset me because that's all I ever talked about. That's all I looked at. And at that moment, I just knew and I made a, a decision in my little six-year-old head that I was going to take ballet class and I was going to see um, famous ballerinas and I was going to see all these famous um, productions and the reservation and other people are not going to stop me. And it just so happened that summer that my mom took a position in Rapid City and I was going to have the opportunity to take ballet. And the thing that I love most about my, my journey to do ballet was that my, my journey to ballet was all because of American Indian ballerinas. It started with Maria Tallsheep, and the way that I got to my dance studio in Rapid City happened to be through Elizabeth Whipple. Um, Vince Whipple and my dad played golf together, and they had lived in Rapid City. And so he said, you know, we're moving up there. My daughter wants to take ballet. And he said, well, my daughter, Elizabeth, takes uh, from Academy Dance with Kay Schneider. Um, so before we even found our house, we found our dance studio, or my dance studio. And... Um, and it was so neat to go to a dance studio to have one of the, the better dancers at this dance studio be another, be another Indian dancer, um, Elizabeth. And my dance teacher actually came from Norman, Oklahoma. And so when I walked in there, um, and of course we have the last name short, but everybody knows that you're Indian, but she was, you know gave me the best education on the five famed um, Osage ballerinas of Oklahoma who all danced for um, major ballet companies, the Paris Opera, um, and Maria Tallsheep at New York City Ballet. So I felt like my introduction to ballet was not, you know, learning um, an art form that is traditionally done by um white people. <laughs> I was introduced to an art form that was dominated and um, 
influenced by American Indians. And I'm so proud to have, uh, you know, my teacher, um, uh, Kay Schneider, give me that lesson. And um, going and doing ballet and um, being in, um, in South Dakota, I mean, I think that everything you know that it, it's difficult. Um, you know, people have misconceptions of who you are as an Indian person, you know, that they either you're poor, you're drunk, um, you know, you come from a broken family. But it was for me to, to go to dance programs. You know, nobody ever saw or ever had any of those type of misconceptions. Ballet was always so inclusive for me. And they saw my diversity as an asset. Um, and they saw it as, look at this person who is so, um, doesn't look like anybody else. And that's amazing when you, you know, when you, if you go into a, a um, ballet, I mean, corner ballet, everybody is trying to look the same, dance the same, um, move the same. Um, but to be um, singled out or um, in a positive way, um, I can't thank um, my parents, my teachers, um, for allowing me to do this. Um, fantastic um, art and I went on to um, perform uh, with actually Misty Copeland came to South Dakota and we did the Nutcracker from the Black Hills oh. um, dance theater she played Clara Wow! and I was the Sugar Plum Fairy so can you imagine that this is Rapid City, South Dakota, and the two leads in this production are done by an African-American and an Ogallala Sioux uh, woman. I mean, amazing. Um, and from there, ballet just gave me an opportunity um, to, you know, uh, go to school. I, I went, um, went to school at the University of Utah first as a ballet performance major, um, a double major in political science, um, and also used my ballet training to compete in this America pageant. Um, even though I got sick and that's when I um, came back and went to school at the University of South Dakota, um, you know, I, I would go and take class um, and drive to Yankton um, every other night uh, to go take class with uh, Gerardo Dannenberg at her studio and she's a fantastic teacher in South Dakota. We get some, it's amazing how we get uh, some really fantastic uh, uh, ballet teachers here in the woods. Um, but I stopped dancing and then I decided to, uh, I had uh, gone out and worked out in Portland and then I moved back home and I had, I would take dance here and there, um, but I missed it. Um, I think doing it for so long and, you know, anytime I'd hear classical music when I was shopping, especially the Christmas time, um, I would get sad because I'd hear the Nutcracker music. And I was like, I just need to get back into the studio. And I, when I moved back to Rapid City, um, I had, uh, there was an article in the newspaper and uh, this woman named Leah Malcolm had moved from Las Vegas. She actually danced at the Royal Ballet. She was a soloist. And she came out to South Dakota. She brought her role. She's actually um, uh, the lead performer um, in Las Vegas at Ole's Crochet. Uh, but she opened up a dance studio. And just her 
reading her bio and everything, I was like, oh, I need to go take dance with this woman. But I mean, I hadn't really, really danced in maybe 10 years. Um, but I just went into her dance studio and, um, and the fact that I mean, she knew, I mean, she took classes with all the people that I loved from that book that I had when I was down at Holy Rosary. I mean, she sit there and talk about, um, you know, Antoinette Sibley, Darcy Bustle, and she talked about all the beautiful ballets um, that were done by the Royal, um, by the Royal Ballet. And I just loved her. However, she was a strict teacher. Um, and I just remember like the first day of class and she was like going across the floor. And by that time that we actually hit going across the floor, I felt like, oh my God, I'm so out of shape, so out of practice. But even, and I still loved it though. I, I didn't care how brutal it was. And I remember her going, Vanessa, bloody hell, get your fat ass across the floor. I was like, oh, so this is the teacher that I've always dreamt and wanted. So, um, but then uh, I, I moved to Texas. Uh, my husband was stationed down in San Antonio. Um, and it was uh, difficult because at that time I had been doing a lot of work in public health. Um, and though my background in public health was applicable to uh, the Hispanic population, I didn't speak Spanish. And that was a I, uh, it was very difficult to find a position. It just so happened that I was going to take class and I had gone to a dance school. And there was a woman talking at the counter saying that their school was looking for a teacher who taught, who knew Chiquetti. And it's a ballet te technique that I was familiar with and that's um, what I was trained in. And I was listening and I, I asked her, I said, well, you know, I'm a little out of practice um, and I hadn't taught um, I would teach here and there, but never, you know, um, anything. Um, so she, so I said, well, you know, I, I know Chiquetti. That's how I was trained. That's what I learned when I was growing up. So I sent um, my resume to the school. Of course, I sent my, like, true work resume to this private school in San Antonio. And the lady's like, no, no, we need your dance resume. And I was like, oh, okay. Um, nobody cares about your publications that you put in there. They want to know if you can teach ballet. So, um I went there and I, I got hired um, to teach um, as a sub and then got hired to teach as their Chiquetti instruction, instructor. And so I I was surprised that all of a sudden, um, you know, my my career had, you know, changed. I, and it had gone back to what, you know, I had really wanted to go to school for to begin with was to teach ballet. Uh, or to teach ballet it was actually to do ballet. I never thought that I'd actually be a teacher, but in San Antonio, um, I, I got to also teach at, at not only at this private school, but also at this other school that was on the South side of San Antonio. And I, I left because I, I told my mom when I first went there, um, I just happened to meet the the owner of the studio at this, at the, the dance shop. And she said, you know, we don't have a dance teacher. And I was like, Oh, I, I'd love to come in and check it out. And um, driving on the south side, I felt like I was driving through Pine Ridge. Um, you know, <laughs> there's lots of brown people. Uh, you know, it, the houses look somewhat the same. You know, there, there's those roaming pack of dogs um, <laughs> that are going by. And this dance studio was in, um, uh, it used to be her family's um, grocery store. It had great wood floors. And, um, you know, 
year. So I was like, sure, let me see this. And, um, these were, these were kids who, I mean, I, I taught them just as hard as I, I taught the kids at the private school and I loved being there. And I learned so much from, from the, the family that were at, uh, that attended the studio because my brain had always thought that, um, you know, being Spanish speaking, you know, I used to always take offense of like, why, why is it that people get depressed numero dos? Now somebody speaks Spanish to them. And yet as American Indians, nobody's, we don't get a number three just for somebody to speak Lakota to us. And I would just get upset by that. Um, going there to the studio, I learned so much more. Um, and not, not about teaching dance, but just about um, what makes up um, this country. And it was interesting because they didn't see themselves as, you know, Spanish or Hispanic they saw themselves as indigenous Mexican and two having the same feelings that they had about having to speak Spanish as we do English. Hmm. And, um, they had a fabulous folklorico teacher, uh, Mr. Munoz. Um, and he was so passionate about teaching the traditional dances, um, of Mexico, um, to these students. And I would come and sit and I would come an hour early just to sit and watch and teach these, dances and then and for them um telling them how much she wanted you know to take pride in these dances this is your history this is you know you are so um and i take a lot of um of pride in my time that i spent down in san antonio and um even though most people remember me you know being a, a ballet dancer i i would hope um you know, my ballet took me to be um, a humbled ballet teacher. Um, and, uh, yes, so that's that's my um, ballet story. It's still going now. I'm still working on continuing my um, teacher's training in Chiquetti. Um, and, you know, if I, if I could say um, what my life goal is being – even at my old age now, I, I, I would love to come back um, to the reservation and I would love to have um, a ballet academy on the reservation to be someplace where, um, like it was um, at the Royal Ballet, like their school, kids come and live and stay and, and we do ballet. That would be, um, that would be my dream, I think. I would love to uh, live out my days in Pine Ridge and, and be the, the mean ballet teacher. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's commendable and it's completely achievable. Um, so many of the guests of the show eventually become instructors or teachers. And I think the majority of these artists become teachers because I think they are. And maybe it's... Uh, it's a part of our indigenous way of being where we give back, we teach. And so there seems to be something that is familiar in these conversations, uh, both uh, with past guests and, of course, what we're doing right now. So, <clears throat> excuse me, we've talked a bit, uh, a little bit, I guess, on your influences. Uh, you've mentioned some notable individuals. Um, is there someone else that 
comes to mind asking this second question about your influences? Um, I mean, I, I would have to say my grandmothers, um, and my mother and my, um, aunt, um, Dr. Maxine Janice, um, all, again, too, all, um, people who have been great teachers, but the things that I've taken from them are their ability to, um, endeavor to persevere. Um, you know, when I look at my, um, my grandma Zona, I mean, she was one of the first people on the reservations to get a vehicle. Um, and think about in the 1920s, a, a, a woman <laughs> having a, a car. I mean, she, she went to school out in Chamel, Oregon, um, and she came back. Um, and you know, she spent her time, um, teaching, uh, about, um, you know, the Lakota ways and her and my, my grandma Sadie were, you know, I, I would, they're, they're, they're national treasures in my mind, but, you know, people used to come and, and visit them. And the one thing that I have taken from them is that, you know, our culture is meant to be shared, um, not just shared within our own people, but shared with everyone. Uh, we have so much to offer and give. And when I think about my grandmothers and how um, they were just uh, kind and gentle souls and they had amazing character. And when I think about them, um, I think of them as um, what I would like to be um, <laughs> when I get older. Um, and it's the fact that Sometimes, uh, even having just passing conversations with people, and, and maybe this is the problem with uh, where we are now as far as social media and entertainment, um, is the lack of personality <laughs> that people have. And when I think about my grandmothers, their personalities were astounding. I, I, I I just smile every single time I, I think about them. And I, I, I think um, about your dad, um, Joe, I mean, I think you probably can agree that there, there is a generation of people, of Indian people out there who, you know, maybe didn't have, you know, credentials behind their names, but were amazing human beings. Um, and, uh, and my dad's mother, um, Elizabeth crew. I mean, she had an extraordinary story too of not only um, leaving the reservation for uh, a period of time. I mean, she was in um, the Navy during World War II. Um, from her, that's where I get my Lakota name, Minnie Walshery Chalkmina, which is woman who stars over the ocean. Um, but she worked on projects um, in New York City. Um, I can think about the time that we went to dinner and we we're sitting um, at the bar waiting for our table and boxing had come on and the gentleman had said, ladies, would you like me to turn this channel? And she said, no, I, I, I like watching boxing. Um, she said, I think the last uh, person I saw box was Sunny Liston. And she said, you know, I, I saw Joe Lewis, but I looked at her and just thinking like, who is this woman? 
you know, that I've been sitting next to it. And because this woman, um, who was an avid reader, um, you know, I, I, I have at night, I have to, on my bedstand, if I at least don't have, um, five books here, um, you know, I, I feel, <laughs> I, I feel naked if I don't have my books, but she always, always reading. I mean, because of her, I have a, an ample knowledge of Henry VIII's wives. I mean, is that going to get me somewhere in life? Probably not, but will I win at, you know, weekly trivia night somewhere? Most likely. (laughs) (laughs) And with my aunt Maxine, who's doing um, fantastic work in the areas of public health out in the Northwest. Um, uh, She was working at Heritage University and took a sabbatical to help um, the tribes out there um, battle COVID. And I just feel like um, I was surrounded by really strong women, and that includes my mom. And I'll be remiss if I don't say anything about my dad because I have—I I think I'm obligated to have to say uh, um, something about my dad and Ogallala Lakota College. I, I do have to promote the college. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but I um, for him, I, I look at him because he's so passionate about education, and he's passionate about. Um, getting, having Indian people have the opportunity to receive an education, um, you know, their programs have opened up, you know, to provide, um, training for nursing, but they also have an automotive program. Um, and the realization that, um, we as Indian people are the ones who are going to be the ones to open the doors, um, for each other. Um, to create jobs and opportunity on the reservation. And that the reservation doesn't have to be a place uh, of poverty or be a statistic. Um, we don't have to be, you know, uh, you know, public televisions, you know, 60 minute, you know, every other, it seems like every other month there's something about the reservation that we can start um, about the terrible things that are going on there, but now we can start being, look at all the fabulous things that are going on on the reservation. And one of the things that um, all throughout Indian country is the, the beacon of lights for them are their tribal colleges. So, um, you know, his tribal college, Ogallala Kodu College, I feel like is um, my fourth sibling. Um, when I competed in pageants, um, their graduation always somehow was on the same weekend as, um, Miss South Dakota. Um, on Saturday, uh, my dad would be down in Kyle and then would have to drive all the way to hot springs, um, you know, to watch the pageant. And I never felt, um, I was always happy he was doing that. I was always happy to see his audience or face in the audience, um, when he was there, but I, I knew how much he cared and loved his school. And, um, but the, the night that I did win um, <laughs> Miss South Dakota, uh, he he didn't know that he had to come on stage and escort me uh, down the runway um, as part of the evening gown. And uh, everybody knows uh, Pine Ridge is, you know, dusty. 
Um, and he, I think he must have had the windows down as he was going, cutting across through the Badlands. <laughs> but when I got on stage to give him a hug, and you can see on the video, I mean, there's like puss of dust coming off his jacket as I'm hugging him. So. But um, yeah, those those are my um, those are my influence, and yeah, I I can't I don't think I'd be here without them. I think that's great. I, the, the acknowledgement of family and the power of your grandmothers um, is, is something that resonates so much. I, I do want to segue into something that is a very significant part of your story, is that you weren't just Miss South Dakota USA and Miss South Dakota. Um, you're the first Native American in South Dakota. And I imagine one of the few individuals who has won both titles in the state. Yes, I'm one of two um, and the only American mm. Indian to win both of them. That's incredible. Um, yeah. And it, it was a, a uh, people say, was it was it a difficult challenge to do? Um, it was because when I first competed, um, when I was in high school, um, you know, the, and it was a local pageant and the, the girl, um, that was giving up her title and, and this was Rapid City, you know, pretty said to me, you know, you know, why are you doing this? You know, you're young, you're 18 and you're Indian. And I, I, at that time, I mean, I, I've, I mean, I've had people say, you know, racist things to me, but I've never had somebody just so casually be like, you can't do this because you're Indian. Um, and at that pageant, I mean, I, I won everything. Um, and, and I, I just remember thinking back to her, it's like, yeah, you told me I couldn't do it because I was Indian. I'm like, yeah, you, look at this. I did it because I'm Indian. <laughs> and, and, um, you know, um, and to also compete in something where you don't have, um, people who look like you compete. I mean, um, you know, uh, I don't remember seeing a lot of Indians in swimsuit and high heels. I mean, that's something that you just, you know, don't see in uh, Pine Ridge, South Dakota every day. Maybe it does happen. Maybe I, maybe I didn't go out enough, but, um, it, it was, uh, it was a, a challenge. Um, and it was also challenging to have to answer questions that, um, I was wondering if the other white contestants were getting them. Uh, should people be scared about driving through, you know, the certain highway that cut across um, Pine Ridge and Rosebud? Like, why would white people, why, why would you as white people be scared? Like, do you think Indian people sit there every single day and care about white people going through <laughs> like <laughs> we're that preoccupied with you get over yourselves you know <laughs> we've got better things to think about we got to know you know who's out there to snag you know there's powwows <laughs> going on um you know it's very important uh, how, long of we, course. how long can we ride with that spare on our tire you know that spare tire on our car <laughs> Very true. It's a very good point. Yes. You uh, you bring up uh, the separate point that I think for many in the state of South Dakota, um, there are barriers for 
Lakota, Dakota indigenous people. <clears throat> Excuse me. I imagine that Miss South Dakota pageant is one of those things. And it says a lot about your character that you just walk through all of that. Um, certainly not easily imagined the, the things that were said to you. Uh, I, I don't know if it was something that was a fuel to your fire or if it was something that you had to sort of recollect yourself and then push forward. Oh, it's definitely fuel for your fire. Um, I think for me, um, you know, I've always used humor in situations to kind of, you know, uh, let it roll off my back. And that's all you really could do because what, what, where it was all this coming from. And when you think about what racism is or what, where it's coming from, it's, it's a place of fear, um, ignorance, um, and, you know, maybe even a little bit of intimidation. And so when these people are saying those things to you, you know, they're not, they want to bring you down. Why do they want to bring you down? Because they see you as being a threat or they see you as, as someone who's going to take away, you know, an opportunity from them, from them. And, um, you know, being that it's a competitive, um, pageantry is competitive. Well, yeah, if you, if you feel like you need to say those things to me, then I know that I'm someone that you think is competition. So, so be it. And um, I'm not sure if you know, I am Lakota. I'm Oglala Sioux. Uh, we were meant to fight. Um, and there's no way that I'm not walking out here with a win. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, I've, I've had to take my uh, licks at pageants too. Um, you know, there are times where, you know, I second runner up. And of course, um, you know, I, I never had anybody do anything to me. Um, you know, I've never had anybody, you know, cut up any of my stuff or, um, try to sabotage me. Um, kind of opposite. In fact, is, uh, the year that I actually won, my top actually fell off during one of the production numbers. And, um, this, I blame my mother and her, um, her boarding school days, uh, because she, made the top and it was like a halter top. Of course, she starched the heck out of this thing and ironed it. So, I mean, it was like wearing just like a stiff, like cardboard thing. And, um, she thought that because I was, had to do a quick change instead of using a hook and eye to keep everything attached, she used Velcro. So as I'm dancing, because that's what they do. And in, in these pageants is they do production numbers. I could hear the Velcro starting to pull away. And I was like, Oh my God, if I throw my arms up, I hope this thing doesn't fall. So I, you know, finish the move, the end of the thing and the top actually falls down. And the audience was probably more shocked than I was. Um, and I remember going backstage and like just going off and everyone's like, Oh my God, I'm so sorry. Like, why are you sorry? They're like, Oh, cause you can't go back on stage. I was like, why am I not going to go back on stage? Like, what? why wouldn't I not go back on stage? Like, this is so embarrassing. I can't go back on stage. Um, I would have reconsidered that at that moment had I known what my brother was saying during uh, the intermission. Because people are like, oh, I hope no one took any pictures. You know how they are with pageant girls who's top, you know, being topless. Or, and it didn't fall off that far. You know, because they send that stuff to like Playboy and Penthouse. And my annoying brother was like... They ain't gonna send it to Penthouse or Playboy. <laughs> More like National Geographic, eh? 
I just remember like after hearing that, I was like, you're right. I, I probably wouldn't have gone back on stage, but I, I mean, I did. I mean, there was nothing else. I had gone that far. Who cares that that happened to me? But I just remember that all those girls were thinking like, that was, that was the straw that, like, oh, she can't go back on. But no, mm. Mm. I did. <laughs> <laughs> so how have you developed your career college and post-college? Um, you know, it really actually began when I was, um, sick. Um, I had a, had to have bowel, uh, had a bowel obstruction. Um, as a child, I had a diaphragmatic hernia and during spring break in South Dakota, the night that I was supposed to go back to Rapid City, they had this huge ice storm. So I hungered down at my brother's place in Yankton and I just felt terrible. Um, and being that my mother is a nurse and she always said, unless you've got something protruding in your arm, don't muck up my ER is what she would say. Take a Motrin and lay down. So I was like, well, my stomach hurt. Maybe it's just food poisoning. I'll just wait it out. But the next day it got bad. But we had this ice storm. So the ER was like packed there because everybody in an ice storm in South Dakota apparently wants to go out and check out the ice. So there's like head lacerations, broken wrists. So they like put me in the corner. Um, and kind of forgot about me. But finally, when they got to me, they realized I had an obstruction and had to have surgery. But I was placed in a room with this um, older woman. And um, I got to hear her story. And she was a farmer. Um, and she had uterine um, <clears throat> cancer of the uterus. And the family uh, came in and they were talking with her. And she didn't have any insurance. Um, and the family said, well, you know, we don't have, we don't have the funds to, you know, be able to have you have treatment and then have the aftercare. We'd have to sell the farm. And she said, oh, okay. And the next day she checked herself out and listening to her and her story was like, how can we live in a country like the United States? And the decision um, for seeking treatment comes down to, you know, your, either your livelihood or your life. And I thought that was wrong. And so after, um, you know, I uh, got out of college, I, I worked for um, the Aberdeen Area Indian Health Board and um, start working in the area of public health. Um, and, you know, made my way out to um, the Northwest Portland Area Indian Health Board and then came back and worked for a cancer navigation program in um, Rapid City. And now I work for um, the VA here in Philadelphia. Um, but I think that motivated me because we're in a place where... Um, we have to do prevention um, because once you get to the point where, um, you know, you're in need of treatment, um, the cost is so astronomical that, you know, it's really difficult to be sick in America. It's almost impossible to be sick in America. And um, her story just, it, it broke my heart. And, um, from there I, I wanted to make, um, you know, a small difference of trying to educate people, um, instead of, uh, you know, always having to do crisis management 
that we could actually be, um, we could do a little bit of prevention. And I think for American Indians, you know, prevention is innately ours. I mean, innately within us, um, you know, thinking about having to survive, um, and also, um, you know, you had to be in peak physical health. And I think Indians were always really in tune with their bodies. Um, and I think that's something, um, you know, due to, um, you know, forced assimilation that we kind of lost sight of that. And, um, I can remember my grandmother getting up every morning and her being in her nineties. I mean, her thing about her day starting out well was the fact, I mean, she could still touch her toes. I mean, she could kick her leg up to her hand and she made it a point to, um, you know, go downstairs and walk around her pool table and go out and get fresher. But it was always, you know, her thing was use it or lose it. And, um, that, that time in the hospital shaped where I, um, it's kind of what, um, where I wanted to be because, you know, being sick is awful. Um, and if you could do a little bit of prevention to keep people out of the hospital and keep them healthy, that's what I want. Um, and the fact that my grandmother who's 98 when she passed had one of the most peaceful passings and that's um, how I want um, all people, especially Indian people, to pass and, and not have to pass um, in great pain. I mean, she was 98, um, and it was the last month of her life, and, and she, I think she knew that you know her time was coming, and she said, told my mother that there was only two people that she really wanted to see in this world, and one was me, and the other was my Aunt Maxine. And... Um, I came home on a Friday with her and I, and she had, um, I guess a, a send off <laughs> was befitting of her status of being a, the granddaughter of chief red cloud and young man afraid of his horses. I mean, people had come to visit her and they sang a red cloud song for her. We sat there and we had time to talk. And, um, as it got, you know, time for bed. I said, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to sleep with, I'm going to sleep on the floor next to her. And that night, um, you know, she started talking in her sleep you know, and she started calling out the names of her, of our relatives. So I knew that they were coming to get her and out of selfishness, you know, I called for my mom. I said, mom, mom, I said, we got to wake up grandma. So she woke up and, and we said, grandma, are you okay? And she said, oh yeah, yeah. Get some water and and that was me because I didn't want her to go. Um, but uh, she looked at me and she's, as we're getting ready to, um, she looked at me and she said, Takoja, she said, let's, let's go to bed. I said, okay. And I went to sleep. And that night I had the most deep sleep I've ever had. And when I woke up, I just remember rolling over and I was like, oh no. And I looked and she had her hands. Um, above her chest and just holding uh, her hands and she had this the most beautiful look I've ever seen on a person and it was peace and she had passed and I just 
I thought about all the new people who have to hold the hands of their loved ones who are in pain and who are scared. And I thought that um, I, I thanked her for honoring me with her passing and that I got to experience that because um, I think for a lot of us, a lot of new people, we don't get that. And I want all of us to be 98 years old and to pass with peace and to go on that journey. So um, even now working at the VA, um, even though I'm not working with American Indians, I'm still um, providing the, the best I can for um, our brothers and sisters in arms. You know, they're, they're our warrior family, too. Hmm. I, uh, <clears throat> sorry, I, I got caught up in that. <laughs> I, I don't want to jump to the next question of how do you seek opportunities because that seems inappropriate. <laughs> uh, thank you for sharing that. That's well, um, how long have you worked with the VA now? Um, I've been at the Philadelphia VA for the, the past, um, two years. Um, I work within the health administrative, um, services of the VA. Um, I enjoy my time there. I enjoy the people that I work with. Um, mm -hmm. and there too, um, you know, they, they have this, the struggles that, uh, we as Indian people have to, uh, with Indian health service. Um, oh, yeah. Yep. yeah. <laughs> and it's, um, I guess what I try to provide is, is to be a good navigator uh, for them to get them through the system, get them through the care. Um, you know, we're unfortunately in a time where even the care of veterans is politicized um, and it should not be. Um, and it's, um, it's, it's a, it's a fulfilling job to be there. And it's amazing to see the nurses and doctors who are committed to providing the best care possible for, um, for, for our, our veterans. And it just, uh, it just, uh, I don't want to make it political, but it, it bothers me to walk into the VA and have to see a certain 45's picture um, yeah. and knowing what his intentions are and what he thinks of us as veterans. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I mean, yeah. So um, I try to take all of that angst that I have and just try to do um, the best that I can for um, her brothers and sisters. I think it speaks to the character of the people who work there, yourself included, that through the last four years and the nonsense that a lot of people have been subjected to, uh, that you still show up for the job, still show up for work, and that the priorities are in the right place. Um, and it's 
something that I've witnessed myself being in the VA system. Um, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it's strange times, strange times. Yeah. Um, so like, like a lot of Native Americans, indigenous people, you yourself are a veteran. Uh, you've served this country and I thank you for your service to this country. I, uh, I don't know how much you want to speak to that, um, but I imagine it was a factor for you to go to the VA. Well, <laughs> it's funny. Um, you know, my family has had a, a long history of serving, um, all the way back to World War One, um, and my brother, older brother, who um, served in the South Dakota National Guard. Uh, just as you, Joe. And again, <laughs> thank you for your service and, and to your lovely wife. Um, part of the reason why I wanted to go to the VA is, um, you know, the VA has an opportunity to do right by American Indian veterans. Um, you know, we, um, as Indian people, you know, have some of the, the higher rates of service. Um, by um, minority groups. Um, and yet sometimes I feel like we're not a factor um, in policy that is made. And um, in areas like South Dakota, um, you know, for veterans who have to travel, you know, close to three hours or um, across the state to get care. And it's wrong. Um, and though they try, um, you know, through, um, through the mission act, um, you know, trying to say, you know, we no longer have to choose between getting care from Indian health service and the VA. Um, it's fine. Um, but they need to, they really, the, the effort needs to be made, um, to serve, Indian veterans better and to create programs specifically for Indian veterans, um, whether that is through a specific uh, PTSD program or um, addiction program. I know that they do their best, but making moccasins and um, dream catchers, you know, <laughs> um, you know, is, is a small thing. Um, I would like them to, you know, actively pursue more, um, not just clinicians, but, um, spiritual leaders to take an active role in developing these type of programs. Mm -hmm. Um, and for me, um, I've said that one of the policies that I would like to see changed is, um, how hiring happens within VAs. Um, you know, we have the benefit at Indian Health Service and BIAs that, um, that there is an Indian hiring preference, um, mm -hmm. also a tribal hiring preference. But within the VA, if your service unit um, serves um, 15 to 20% of the population, that Indian preference hiring um, needs to be a factor. And that means hiring uh, nurses, doctors. We need uh, people who look like us to treat us. Um, and 
that's that's where um, that's that's a small change that I would love to see at the VA. And the final question I propose to the guests on this podcast is, um, what would you say to the 18 or the 22-year-old who is listening to this conversation? I would say, uh, you know, I'm, I'm inspired by this younger generation, um, their tenacity, their desire to want change, not just for themselves, but for future generations. It's, it's, um, and it's such a, an American, it's an indigenous ideal. Um, but I'd like to also say to them too, that, you know, this life, um, you know, not everything is a, a clear path and that, um, you as a person are, are constantly evolving and you're evolving um, into something that sometimes you don't even see for yourself. Um, and there are going to be moments of hardship um, and moments of true achievement. Um, and that doesn't mean at those points that you should ever stop wanting to achieve. And, and, and if there are high hardships, that doesn't mean that, you know, that's just it. Um, you know, this is a, a journey. Um, and for me, I've had probably more valleys than I have had peaks, <laughs> but I've enjoyed, uh, the struggle of, um, you know, picking myself up and, um, you know, figure out who this Vanessa Shortbull is. And I hope that, you know, they know at this, at that age that the, that there are so many things out there um, for them and that they should always keep that, um, that idealism alive. Um, you know, I used to joke and say that public health has killed my idealism. Working for, being a self-servant has killed my idealism. It really hasn't. It's still there. And maybe people think may think that's, um, <laughs> you know, at, at this day and age, like, good Lord, you know, it's still there. I, I still believe in the good of people. Um, and I know that this podcast is going to air after uh, Election Day, and this is the, the night before. Um <laughs> and I, 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 I believe that, um, you know, what happens after election day is not going to be a civil war. It's what we're going to do, um, best as Americans and, um, and it's what we have to do and it, it we have to have reconciliation, um, and we have to um, close our close our mouths for a moment and uh, just behold <laughs> who we are as a people um, and know that what we experienced in this past four years is is just a a blip <laughs> and um that uh, great things are um, great to come from, from us all. And um, 
and for Indian people. Um, and Joe, I just, you and Cicely, I, I'm so proud of you both. Um, I'm proud for the endeavor that you are taking on and I'm proud that you are, um, having conversations and you're doing it in this format, um, at a time where, you know, we can't be in each other's home. We can't sit and um, offer each other with quality and, um, but you're, you're doing what we do best and that is having meaningful conversations. So thank you. Thank you for that. That's so nice. I look forward to the day that we can sit at a table and drink coffee and chat face to face. Yes. Vanessa, thank you for this. This was amazing. Thank you, Joe. It's my pleasure. And that does it for this episode of Five Plain Questions. I want to thank Vanessa again for her time and sharing her story with us. Uh, I was reminded in this conversation um, just how funny and genuine and such a a biting sense of humor that she has. And it's always been such a pleasure uh, interacting with her uh, from those early days in Indian radio days to this conversation that we had today. So Vanessa, thank you so much for this conversation. It's been deeply appreciated. And that does it for season one of five plain questions i wanted to um thank you for joining us this year and listening to a series of conversations that are so important and so enjoyable to listen to um as the the host of these conversations uh I, i feel like i'm in a front row uh visit with people that i have long admired and so want to be able to spend more time with um, and I, th- I feel these conversations have been a gift in 2020 when we've lost so many people, when we've not been able to connect with each other because of failed policies, failed courage, and a pandemic that is taking so many important people away from us. Now, this, uh, this will conclude season one of Five Plain Questions, but don't worry, we are coming back in February for season two and it'll be a longer season um and hopefully this will be the beginning of uh, a series that will uh bring you back every week with someone that is so interesting and doing so much for us and our community so thank you for that i'm joe williams you can find us on Canada. that's c-a-n-a-a creativity among native american artists on facebook and our plainsart.org website um there you can see our programming uh and you know the podcast is just one aspect of what we do um primarily we do exhibitions uh we do community uh engagements so please come by the plains art museum and check us out out there and see kind of what we do in our daily work it would be great to see you so until uh next time you take care stay safe 